Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with author Sally Piper. Sally's debut novel was 2014's Grace's Table, and today we're going to be discussing her latest, The Geography of Friendship. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators of the books you love. In The Geography of Friendship, we meet Samantha, Lisa and Nicole. They're drawn together at school, bonding over their difference and their sense of isolation from the cliques and social circles of the cool kids. Following high school, they embark on a five-day hike. The experience is meant to help them discover themselves until a chance encounter with a male hiker spirals them into a horrific torment, stalked on the trail and harried through the dark nights. The Geography of Friendship takes us into the heart of the discussion around violence against women and illustrates the daily fear that once felt cannot be let go of. Sally's debut novel was 2014's Grace's Table, and today she's joining me to discuss her latest, The Geography of Friendship. Sally, welcome. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for having me on your show today. Oh, look, it's, it's exciting. I'm very interested to talk about The Geography of Friendship. Samantha, Lisa, and Nicole are drawn together at school, and individually they do not feel a place in any of the, the cliques and the social circles that make up the topography of adolescent relationships. And this, this makes them stronger in their friendship because they've chosen each other. And following high school, they embark on a five-day hike. Now, the experience is meant to help them discover themselves and bond in nature. That is, until a chance encounter with a male hiker spirals them into a horrific torment, stalked on the trail and harried throughout the dark nights. Now in their 40s, the women meet again after almost 25 years, treading the same trail of their youth and seeing if they can make sense of those lost days. And so just, wow, Sally, uh, there, is, there is so much in this book to discuss where to begin. Um, now, actually, I understand that you, you took on a similar trek to the one that you describe in The Geography of Friendship, uh, although I hope without the torment. Yeah, I did, Andrew. It's... Um it's interesting where the, the story is loosely said, and, I, and it is loosely said, is uh, Wilson's Promontory in Victoria. And that's an area where I grew up, and that's an area where I first started bushwalking as a very tiny little girl on legs barely long enough to keep up with my older um, siblings. But when it came to write, set this as the scene for the novel, all I could think of was Promontory with, with, with a sense of nostalgia and of this beautiful idyllic area that I grew up in and I couldn't think of it as being a sinister place and it needed to be a sinister place and so that's when I decided, right, I need to do this walk, I need to walk where these women are going to walk and, um, and do it on my own and experience this hardship, not just of the terrain, but um, also that sense of isolation that they experience on their five-day hike. So got the big pack on and away I went. I, I have a feeling as our discussion continues that we are actually going to explore the fact that the violence that you describe shows us how any place can become a sinister place. Uh, but I want to, before we get to that, though, I want to think about the friendship between Lisa, Nicole and Samantha. It's central to the book. What was important to you in bringing these three together and, and that sort of, that arc of the narrative when they meet? 
for the first time at mm. school. Um, you know, I really wanted to look at three women, young women, who meet at school as adolescents, which in that short time for female friendships then, where often friendships are forged in sameness. So the girls who are all the same are the ones that gel together, and those girls who are seen to be a bit different who aren't the sporty girl or the pretty girl or the skinny girl back when these um, women were young were the ones who were often outcasts and often cruelly. Um, so these three girls come together because they're out there all different. Lisa, she's an angry girl at times and she's a fighter. You've got Lisa, um, sorry, you've got Samantha who's a peacekeeper and you've got Nicole who follows the rules. And so not only are they physically different from one another, but they're also emotionally diff- different. But that is what unified them in the end and made their, their friendship so strong is because they weren't conforming to what everyone else thought they should be or what they should look like. Do you think there's a do you think there's a myopia of youth though? Because sort of by by that formulation, we would have these these individuals who come together, and then other people who who centre on sameness are essentially outside of a narrative like this. But I, I sort of when I reflect back on high school, I, I I know I felt very much like I wasn't a part of things. But then in the friends that I had, there were probably people who looked at looked at me and thought, well, you're a part of something and I feel apart from that. Do you think every kid feels that way at some point? Yeah, I think and a lot of it is trying to be like everyone else. And, mm. and at that age, they're all struggling to find out who or what that is meant to be. And I think it must, it just causes fraught adolescence, which we, we don't know who we are trying to be. We're not trying to please ourselves. We're trying to please other people. But Lisa, Nicole and Samantha decide they don't care what other people think of them. They're only there to please each one another. And that is the strength that forges their, their friendship and what they hope to take into longevity into their um, later age. But, of course, that unfortunately didn't happen. Yeah, and a part of that sense of themselves as individuals is uh, that need to discover more of themselves, and that's what takes them on on this five-day hike. Now, we, we have a tradition of horror, I guess, um, in, in a lot of what we would probably just broadly call kind of Western or, um, you know, across American and British and Australian film that we, we're saturated with. And, and it sort of shows us this faceless antagonist who play, preys on the victim. Um, and in your book, I could even see a younger reader catching some of the novel's confrontations in the language of jump scares, which is very much that sort of gaming uh, side of horror that's, that's really huge at the moment. In the book, you made me reevaluate this visual language of horror as being particularly gendered. Um, it's probably, you know, a bit of a no-brain moment to think on these horror protagonists are often male. Did you have horror on your mind as you wrote The Geography of Friendship? You know, it's, I, didn't, I didn't intend to write a horror story, and I don't actually think it is a horror story. Um, it was fear. I wanted to explore fear in women, but I also wanted to explore our perceptions of fear um, because the male character, who's never named in the novel, he's just the man, and he's intentionally quite a sparse character. And we really don't ever see him, apart from the first altercation that they have in the car park at the trailhead with him. The girls don't actually see him again for several days. And, and it, they almost, 
each of them almost in their own way thinks of him as either phantom-like or not... Well, Lisa, certainly the angry character, she just can't really even perceive that he's a reality on many levels and doesn't believe that he's out there and he's a threat to them that he proves to be. But it was quite intentional that I made his character sparse because I wanted to sort of explore this idea that women build uh, boogeymen in their minds. We build fear in our minds and we live with that every single day as as we've found with all the media, especially recently, um, that we alter the things we do and where we go and what we wear and what we say um, to conform to this expectation that we don't go to certain places or do certain things. But then we live with this constant fear as a consequence and that's what I really wanted to explore in this. One of the many things is this sense of fear that we as women live with on a daily basis. Yeah, I... You, you had me thinking about that, this idea of, I mean, violence against women is really a horror story of our time, and the perpetrators aren't masked villains. I mean, I guess the difference between horror as it plays out in, I guess, contemporary popular narratives is that there is no supernatural masked villain who who is per- perpetrating the horror. It's very ordinary people and so often there's this sort of apologist sense of the the media talking about or people talking to the media about it oh understanding the the person who perpetrates these acts as, as they were a nice person and and the like mm. was was that juxtaposition of ordinariness uh with the evil important here yeah definitely yeah he he was to be perceived as the Every man or the any man is he's the, the thing we fear in our dreams or in our imagination, and and he's quite spaceless in that regard. I mean, he does have a certain physical presence. Doesn't have a chin. But, yeah, <laughs> but it's not a, a major physical presence, and mm. so no, he wasn't. I didn't want people to be able to just see an a individual clearly. I wanted them to look at the. The, the scope to which we allow ourselves to be afraid, I guess. And whilst he is something to fear, mm. um, I also, as a solo bushwalker, I push against that boundary that says that I should be afraid all the time and everywhere that I go um, because I, I don't want to have my life dictated mm. by living in the fear that something could potentially happen, I guess, even though for these women something does happen. And that's that's important, isn't it? The idea that he was quite ordinary, he was quite quite faceless. It could be anyone. And there is a moment in the book, and I forget which character is musing on this. I think it's Lisa um, struggling to to maybe place some sort of mental anguish on this person, or or maybe in some way that they're deranged and that's driven him to these acts, because that at least helps helps them un- might help them understand. But in fact, he is completely ordinary, and he perpetrates this this horror of tormenting the women simply because he can, it seems like. I mean, yeah. we never we never fully understand, but seemingly because he can. And it's about a, a, the balance of power. He, he He's almost, it's like, a, he treats it as a game. I mean, and what some of the characters do refer to it as this game that he plays. And it's, it's about a power balance. He, he knew he could torment them and he knew he could terrorise them. And he just looked for ways to do it. And, and that, was what gave him pleasure. Mm. That was to be able to dominate over people in that way without necessarily being a physical domination over them. That isn't the 
great part of the story. It, it's a part of it, but not, mm. not the only part of it. It's about this manipulation of women's thinking and um, to have that power to do that. It's quite extraordinary, but it, it happens every single day. Yeah. I, I was also interested in the catalyzing event for the this uh, this torment that the man uh, perpetrates on Nicole, Samantha and Lisa. It seems so innocuous. Lisa drives too fast into the car park as they arrive at the hike, um, spraying dust across him. And that that's seemingly all it is. That that then sets off this spiral of events. It's It's an absolute nothing. Was the catalyst important to you for what followed that somehow there was no justification and this sort of, this extends out into the wider world when we hear about violence there's no justification mm-hmm. for it it's all in the mind of the person who decides to to act out the violence that's right and the the provocation to act can be something simple as putting dust over a person when you drive too fast into a car park it mm-hmm. happens in the story and it's it's i guess it's looking at how that escalates and what are the, the social and cultural forces that it allows an individual to let that escalate. And the, the sense of torment that he felt, especially from Lisa, who refused to be to be bullied by him, essentially, and, mm. and refused to be fearful of him. And play a role. And the, yeah, she wouldn't play along. No, she was always going to fight against that. And that, in you know, the, the characters question themselves how much did they provoke him at his game just by refusing not to be dominated or, or being made feel less than by him. So, yeah, you know, these catalysts for anyone to act and shift into violence doesn't have to be a major catalyst because there's a whole backstory to that male character which isn't explored in that novel but is there for readers to imagine. So, you know, what? where has he come from? What has made him like this? Where where does his sense of evil come from that, that thinks that it's okay to do the things that he does? So, you know... Or, or well, has it but, has it yeah, come from anywhere? Yeah. Or is it is it perhaps he is, as you say, every man and that, that potential exists? Um, uh, yes, yeah, mm. yeah. So we have the we have the the twin journeys. We have the journey uh, that play out in in alternating points of view from each of each of the women, and across the initial journey where this torment's being perpetrated, and then the the follow up where they're drawn together. Well, they're not quite sure why because Lisa brings them back together, but they all struggle with their reasons for taking on the hike. But on each journey, the women analyse feelings of blame and responsibility for the events of the hike, and. For me, this sort of, when people talk about victim blaming, when people talk about gaslighting, these these ideas that women are put through mental torment at the hands of men and to make them feel culpable in their own their own victimhood, their own terror, um, I think you've done a really good job of actually illustrating them for people that can't get their heads around it. What were you were you exploring this year? What were you exploring with that? Yeah, that was really important to me. That um, that you know, this whole ingrained belief that um, that we're culpable in some way for things that happen against women, and you know, that's why it, it continues. And women aren't always able to leave those situations is because this sense of self-blame that they have, and also the fact that these three women that what how their friendship disintegrates. There's an enormous amount of guilt that each of them carries with that event in itself, without all the other things that went on with the male character. So, you know, they've got this legacy of that's 
um, followed right through their lives because it's 24 years later before they go on the second hike and they've all gone on and married and well, not all married. Two of them have gone on to marry and have families and, and the legacy of that hike that has infiltrated right throughout their lives and has never left them and has influenced the way they've lived that life ever since. You know, that is a powerful thing to have any experience that can dictate how you live your life forevermore. Mm. Uh, You know, that's that's an awful thing to have to carry with you, the burden of that. And that's one of the things that I was trying to explore, this sense of blame that we carry or guilt and shame and humiliation that these women were subjected to and the long-term consequences of that. Yeah, it's not an overstatement to say that 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 single act of violence, this thing that it becomes revealed is is nothing to the man. He, you could you could almost imagine. I don't think you put these words in his mouth, but these are the words that we hear so often coming from male mouths of "Come on, can't you take a joke?" In in a, I think in his mind it was something of a joke. That single act of violence of of the hike reverberates throughout their lives. They each call into question the entire direction of their life because of this. Yes, they do, and they call into question themselves. Mm. And that's that's the saddest thing, that if they'd done the hike and nothing like had happened that did, they would be completely different women 24 years later. And that was one of the, I guess, one of the significant things I found writing it. Is, you know, you, as you write, you gradually learn who these people are, and I knew who I wanted them to be at 20-year-olds, but I had to learn from their experiences who they were going to be as 44-year-old women, and it, it just brought home the, the tragedy for many women in reality that the, there's a legacy of these things that they take with them right through their lives. Yeah, let's let's explore that development a little bit because we've discussed so much of the issues that the geography of friendship brings up, but of course none of that is successful if you, as the writer, Sally, if you had, haven't built it up and we have these this amazing hike, this incredibly evoked landscape... And so much of it, it's, it's how you discuss it, this build-up, this tension. As we travel through the geography of friendship, I, I speculated, I wondered, it kept me turning pages as faster as I could. How did this build-up of expectation impact you as a writer? What did you feel writing and, and, and what did you want to put in there? I will... I'm a keen bushwalker anyway and just love nature. So that was always an important element to the story for me to capture this sense of landscape but also to capture the the ruggedness of it and, and the isolation of it. So that was all important to me. But interestingly, um, I used to walk mostly with other people and then walking, the, the purpose of my walking has changed somewhat. It's also like working Walking is also working for me. It's when I go and think about the things I need to write. And I love nature. I love to be in nature. And and if you're chatting with a whole bunch of walking friends, you don't necessarily notice nature quite so much. But So I started walking more and more on my own when I was writing this book. And in many respects, I was trying to walk away from the things that make me fearful when I'm out in the bush on my own because I go way off into the deep bush and and love it. But um, I had this sense of fear that I used to always take with me as well. And it was about me confronting my fear about my vulnerability when I'm in the bush. And 
And so it's, it seems a funny sort of juxtaposition to think, well, here I am putting these three women in a fearful situation, but at the same time I could walk away from it. And I did a lot of reading around other women who have solo walkers like Robin Davidson and Rebecca Solnit and about several others, Cheryl Strayed, and all the strength that they took from being able to confront those fears that they that travel with them when they walk. And I guess it just helped me to work through what my fears were and how much of them were real and how much were imagined. So very much it sounds like the process of, of walking and the process of writing have have real parallels and as the walk unfolds so does the narrative is that have i have i paraphrased that too much yeah yes yeah it does it's the landscape is a match of their thoughts really as they move through it they each section of the trail whilst a distant memory is still a memory to them and and while it's changed a great deal from when they were there when they were younger it still carries that terrain of, of who they are and, and who they were then and who they are now. So I guess landscapes are like that. They they leave an imprint on us, especially landscapes where something significant has happened upon them. They it, It's this intersection between history and geography, which is a lot of what I was looking at in the story, that you can leave a place, but does the place ever leave you? Mm. And for these women, this place really has never left them. Another another thing that I thought you fantastically evoked that I, I remember from many hikes and, and sort of expeditions like doing can, long canoe journeys and in, in a part of the build-up is the, the latter part of the journey is always very different by virtue of the effort and and by the fourth or fifth day part of you is inevitably weary you're looking towards mm. the end how much more so i can only imagine for the women's experience in the geography of friendship but you captured that really wonderfully and i it's not giving away too much to sort of talk about the idea and, and the feeling and need to then actually do the journey in reverse to see those later parts with fresh eyes that you can't mm. really see as you do it the first like the the first run no, that's right. They when they come back to do this second hike, and they have only one memory of this place. And so, just as they have to to relearn who their what their friendship is, they actually need to build a new story around the land that they cross, that that they can see it with different eyes and think, actually, this isn't this land hasn't hurt me. Someone has hurt me, and that I can be here and be at peace with that. And then, I ultimately, hopefully, and which is what I wanted still at the end of the novel, is that each of these women does find peace within themselves and find peace within their friendship again. So I guess it's about looking at, at the, these places that have, have affected us and, and hoping that we can... In, embrace them again without the trauma that they caused. So, um, yeah, I'm optimistic these women did. And I, I, I love that we have spoken at length about the geography of friendship and seemingly effortlessly around the huge events that we've kind of teased at but are, are so very much a part of, I, I, I referenced horror before, but there is... There are so many amazing tense moments to read this read this book for the thrill and the thriller uh, suspense that that you invoke. I am I am speaking with Sally Piper and we are discussing her new novel, The Geography of Friendship. It is it is stunning. It is a book to read with your eyes open and, and be ready to think about. Sally, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Final Draft. 
Thanks, Andrew, very much, and and all your great questions around the book, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did, I did. And, and that last comment that I made... Um, when we were just discussing the journey, I was also just referencing right at the very end when Nicole is ready to do the, the journey in reverse and to sort of mm. experience it that way. And it's it's actually something that I've probably not done enough in my own sort of wanderings because, yeah, you do. You get to a journey and even a non-traumatic stalker journey and you sort of think, well, I'm, I'm too tired to appreciate yeah. what I'm seeing. Often we, we try and conquer landscapes. It's about the doing, not the being there. Yeah. And I know that's how I walk differently now, is that it's not about, well, it's certainly for exercise, but that's not the primary focus for me. It's about being there and being present and, and just enjoying what is around me when I walk. That's that's my main passion for walking now, I think. It's that great sense of escapism where you don't have to be something or someone to anybody while you're there. You can just be yourself. Isn't that interesting? It's such, a, it's such an almost horrific analogy for life to this idea that we look to conquer, not to experience. and. Yeah, I um, yeah. it was really early on in the piece when I started doing final draft, and I, someone, it was such a simple thing that someone told me that I I needed to stop thinking about my questions and stop thinking about the interview and actually listen to the person I was interviewing. It sounds oh, so dumb, yeah. but um, <laughs> your questions are so good. <laughs> well, that's but the beautiful thing is I've I wrote so many questions and and. Uh, at least two or three things that I brought up there were completely off script. And I, when I started doing the show, which is so many years ago now, um, I couldn't do that because I was so focused. Even though I'd read the book, I was so mm. focused on what I wanted to ask. I wasn't listening enough to what was being said. Yeah. I, th- I think I'll take your advice into um, into the next walk that I do. I don't get to. I don't really get to do yeah. overnight walks anymore. But I tr- still try and do kind of you know bush walks and just just try yeah. and be there a little bit more and not conquer. <laughs> That's it for this great conversation with Sally Piper. Sally's latest novel is The Geography of Friendship, and it's out now through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more great conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and discover fantastic Australian writing. It's going to be delivered straight to your phone every week. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, you might also want to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I'm going to be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. So I'll see you then.